Father God, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for these children that you've given us. Thank you for the children of this church. Thank you for the parents that have that conviction to teach them the ways of Christ. And thank you for the youth workers who pour their heart and their lives into these young people, Lord. It's a long-term task. And in general, Lord, I just feel, I just pray for the discipleship of our church, that we would be faithful and effective, that we would raise our children to know the gospel, to know the freeing power of Jesus Christ, how he can make us new. Because even our children, Lord, as your scripture says, they're born in sin. They need the gospel. And we believe that. I pray that you would continue to equip every parent here as they learn the gospel, that they learn how to communicate the gospel to their children so that their children can communicate Jesus to their children and build generations of generations for your kingdom. Lord, we need your help. We can't, we can't do this on our own. Send your spirit. Give us ears to hear. Give the children ears to hear and a heart to believe and glorify yourself through their conversion and their growth. Keep them from the evil one. In Christ's name we pray and God's people said, amen. Enjoy Children's Church, you guys. Yeah, going right to class. Bye, Tyus. Bye, Juliet. Love you. Morning, Grayson. I like your blue sweatshirt. Well, good morning, church. Uh, we're going to continue our Epiphany sermon series today. Epiphany means to be revealed or make known through Jesus. God has chosen to reveal who he is and his salvation for us. But we're going to begin by just jumping right into our scripture readings. So if you can and are willing, please stand for the reading of the sacred scriptures. Hear now the words of the living and true God. Genesis 18, 20 through 33. The word says, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away that place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, God. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord replied, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. 
Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, oh, let the Lord not be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then Abraham said to the Lord, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. And the Lord answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Our second lesson from Colossians chapter 3, 12 through 17, the Apostle Paul speaking. He said, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And our last lesson, reading from the Holy Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 13, 24 to 30, and then 36 to 43. It's a parable of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go out and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." It jumps down where then the apostles come to Jesus and ask for him to explain this parable to them. It says, then he left the crowds and went to the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Jesus, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, speaking of himself. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. 
In that place there there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Thanks be to God for his word. Lonnie Blackburn, would you pray for the reading of scripture to be received? Amen. You may be seated. I was backwards, didn't I? Church, uh, this world and its corruption are coming to an end on an appointed day. Coming to an end. And this day, this finale goes by many different names and many different titles. Some call it the day of the Lord. Some call it the day of Christ. Today, we will be referring to it as the day of reckoning. For on this day of the end, all people of all places of all time will give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this really is our main point this morning, is that we know all this is true because Jesus tells us so. It's as simple as that. Our main point is that in Christ, the reckoning or the end is fully revealed. In Christ, the reckoning is revealed But such an idea of an end is nonsense to most people. The the concept of the universe stopping, if you will. If you remember people like modern atheists like Carl Sagan, one of his famous phrases was that the cosmos is all that is and all that will ever be. That was like his famous phrase, Carl Sagan. He's dead. And yet Jesus lives. Amen? So from the modern atheists like Carl Sagan to the skeptics, even in the days of St. Peter when he wrote his little letter, they were saying the same thing about what we're talking about today. They would say things like, where is the promise of his coming? Where's your Jesus at? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation. Meaning time is just ticking on. This God thing you're talking about, this return of Jesus, this this end of history, it's nonsense. Things just keep moving forward. The universe always is and always will be. That's, That's the, outside the church, that's the belief. Because deep down, humans detest and deny and ignore the idea of the consummation of history. Because the premise of the cosmos coming to a particular end on a particular day by a particular means by external forces, at its core means that someone else's will is being imposed upon you, specifically God's will. And this original sin that's in all people, of all places, of all time since the beginning, this original sin in us hates the idea of God's constraint and his control over us. That's one of the simple premises of the Bible. All people hate the fact that there is some idea of a God out there 
who rules over us and controls everything. By nature, we disobey his commandments. We live out our lives in that expectation. As the Garden of Eden played out in all of us, we think we know better than God and say, you have no power over me by the way we live and think and believe. We think we're the master of our own destiny. So when the scripture proclaims, as we read in the parable that Jesus taught us, when we read stuff like that, that all people are going to be brought forward for examination and for judgment, the heart of man gets filled, puffed up with pride, hates that idea, and rage. Have you ever seriously talked to somebody about the judgment of God, of all people, and why you need Jesus? It's usually not a pleasant reaction, is it? It's usually a, well, who's God to judge me, and you know, I, I can do whatever I want, like, Evangelism is hard, right? You're telling people at their core they're sinful and rebellious. It doesn't sound very good or very good feeling, but it's true. And the fact that people hate it, though, hate that reality, doesn't change the fact that this day of reckoning is going to happen. What you feel about it is really irrelevant, isn't it? This day is coming. It's one of the, and think about it, it's also good that it's happening. It's good and right that this end is coming because one of the major themes of the entire Bible is that our good God is the righteous judge and this event happening is good and righteous. It is a good thing for the end to come. And this really takes us to our first preaching point. God is the righteous judge. God is the righteous judge. And we see this in our Old Testament reading because in our scene... What we read this morning is the scene prior to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And these sister cities, they were places of great wealth and luxury. They were places of pomp and idolatry. And they are known for their sexual deviancy. Even non-Christian people, if you mention Sodom and Gomorrah, they, they, most of them will know this story, even if they're not churched, right? It's true, they do. Because these are living testimonies to God's will and action. And the great sin of these powerful cities came up before God, as we read. And the end of the story is, most of us know, if you were raised in church or not, but he rains down his justice upon them, destroying these cities. So much so that it says, when Abraham looked over the plains to that area, paraphrase to you, it said the whole plains was like a giant black smoke furnace coming up. Can you imagine seeing, like if we can picture forest fires and wildfires like burning up acreage, can you think of that times like a bajillion? what that must have been like to actually see the smoke of the destruction of these places. It must have been awful. But there's an important thing we got to think about when God judges and does these things. Uh, his, his righteous judgments, church, they're not cruel or mean, and they are definitely not arbitrary. Definitely not arbitrary. In fact, quite the opposite. For our story this morning reveals two important facts about God acting as the good and righteous judge. First, God's judgments are always according to the truth, meaning he isn't random or capricious. It's not like God is sitting up in heaven with a hellfire button saying, I'm bored today. That's, that's not how this works. God isn't just up there on some cosmic desk with his feet propped up and his foot slips and hits the button and be like, whoa, my bad. It's not like that. And it's not just because he's randomly angry or bipolar or anything foolish nonsense like that. These things have purpose and they're according to the truth. For the text says that God was going to actually investigate 
the charges against Sodom and Gomorrah. It says he's going to go down and see it. He goes, the cry of these places, meaning like the suffering that they're causing, has come up to me. Which means that there were people suffering under their rule and were praying for help to God. And so when God's people pray throughout the whole scriptures, it says his, the prayers of his people come up to him. And he responds, just like later on when the children of Israel, our ancestors, are in Egypt. He says, I've heard their cries and their groans of bondage. It's the same type of language. It's the same idea. The injustice they were receiving is happening here. And God hears about it, hears about it. And he's going to come down and he says, and I'm going to investigate it to see if it's true. If the truth about this place is real. Now, this does not imply that God is not omniscient, like we know he knows everything. He's God, right? But it's kind of like when God, with Adam and Eve in the garden, when they hid from him, and he cries out, Adam, where are you? It's not that he doesn't know, right? He's God. But he uses language like this in the scripture for our sake. He says things like this from a human perspective so that you and I can know for certain that the living God deals with us according to truth and real events and our real actions which have real consequences. Because think about this. This is off the cuff, but uh, imagine if God just prejudged everybody. Like, I know you're going to murder somebody, so I'm going to take you out now. Who would ever tolerate that, right? That would, that would drive us to insanity. And we would charge God with guilt of being unfair because they didn't do anything. And yet then we get mad when God actually does respond to crimes and destroys things because, well, that's unfair because, you know, they're not that bad of people. So either way, we point the finger at God thinking he's bad for being God. But he does things like this for truth to show us that their outcry came and he's responding to what they're doing. It's not random. They really were sinning against the living God. And real actions have real consequences. And the second truth from God being the righteous judge in here is that we can ascertain is that God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. He does not do that. God does not destroy his children with the enemy's children. He doesn't do it. He only does what is right. Meaning that those who have clung to the living God, who've laid hold of him, and they called up to him for mercy and forgiveness, can have absolute sure confidence that his judgments are not for their destruction, but for their deliverance. The judgments of God are not for the righteous. They're for the wicked. Just like when God delivered Lot. The destruction of this place is coming. Abraham bargained him down. He's like, what about even just 10 people? What was the size of Lot and his family on averaging? Like 10 people. That's the point of that story, right? God's like, what about my cousin Lot and his family? Like, that's what he's thinking about. And God's like, for their sake, I won't do it. But God does something better. He delivers Lot from the judgment. It was Lot's deliverance and yet justice for the evil that was happening there. And church, the infamy of these cities and the manner in which they were destroyed is so ingrained in the Bible's narrative that even in the New Testament, the Apostle Jude, in his short letter, he mentions them. He says that the destruction of these cities and what they were doing serve as an example of God's righteous justice by undergoing the punishment of eternal hellfire. Like that's the language the Apostle Jude uses to describe that what they went through is to be a commemoration, if you will, a continual example of how God deals with the wicked. 
in these cities and their destruction, we see God foreshadowing the hellish fate of all who reject him and his righteousness. Because God, the living God, the good God, the truthful God, everything that makes him perfect, the loving God, will not allow evil to prosper forever. Evil cannot inherit his kingdom. Therefore, just as God determined a day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah, in truth and in righteousness, God has appointed a day for all evil. And by all evil, we really do mean all evil to be destroyed and all the righteous delivered. A final day of reckoning has been determined by our Jesus. And that's our second preaching point. The day of reckoning, this day of the end, is coming, church. It's for sure coming. And in our gospel reading, Jesus tells us what this day will be like when his kingdom fully comes. A fixed day will come when King Jesus will send his legions of angels out to gather up all evil and all corruption out of his world and to cast all of that, including the devil himself, into the eternal hellfire. That's when we should be like, amen, come Lord Jesus, come. Because in doing this, when God destroys all of his enemies, when that final judgment happens, even death itself is destroyed, there will finally be peace and safety and security for the people of God. No longer will sin tempt us. No longer will the church be persecuted. No longer will our brothers and sisters be murdered for the sake of Jesus. No longer will we have fear or pain. Paradise will be restored. All will be made right. And all of this is because our Lord Jesus Christ has the power and authority to do this because he is the same God the righteous judge that presided over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Your Jesus, church, is the same Jesus that was talking to Abraham in our story that commanded the destruction of these places. Do you believe that about your Jesus? Like sometimes that's hard for our minds to wrap around, but it's the basic premise of the scriptures. Jesus is God come as a man. So anything God did in the Old Testament That's Jesus. You can't separate that reality out. And in that final day, he will judge his creation, it says, once and for all, in truth and in righteousness, just like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. And when all is said and done, God's kingdom will fully be here, and you and I who have trusted in this Jesus, in his cross and in his resurrection, it says, we will bask in the king's infinite presence. Words undescribable, so much so that his glory will cause us to shine like the sun, it said in that parable, right? He says the righteous will shine like the sun. Remember when Moses went on Sinai and he encountered the living God and he came down and he was glowing because of the glory of God? That glory faded. But you and I have the glory of Christ, a better covenant, and we will shine forever in God's glory and be with him forever. It's, it's an amazing idea, one we can barely wrap our heads around of what it means to live with God forever in a perfection. But that's what it's going to be like, a place where there is 
no evil, no sin, death, corruption, temptation, etc. fill in the blank. A place where pure harmony with God is the norm. Amen? And the whole New Testament, hinted at in the Old, but really through the words of the Apostles say, this is our Christian hope. This is what we ache for down to our bones. This is what our heart of hearts screams out for. Because in this world, when you see sin, death, and suffering, like all the wars happening, and all the abortions that happen, and all the sexual evils, and even the sin of our own lives, which causes us to grieve, because our own sin should grieve us the worst, that's like nails on a chalkboard. Living down in a sin-corrupted world when we have a better hope is painful. The Christian experience is, is a painful experience because we see the death and destruction all around us. We see the unfairness, right? That's why we ache for this day, even if we can't explain it. A day when Jesus will make things right. And when it does, it will be glorious. And God will be honored. And this leads us to our final preaching point. Because until that day comes, we are commanded to live according to the truth of the gospel. That we really are God's righteous people and we really have been separated from the wicked. We're not, we're not like that anymore. And your baptism is a testimony of that. That you've died to your old life and you've risen with the Christ. And this is our final preaching point. Is that we live in light of our reckoning. We live in light of our reckoning. Coming from our Colossians text. Uh, simply put. We're going to skip some of the sermon text here. So I'm going to free for it right now. But simply put, whatever's on the inside of your heart comes out in how you live. And when the apostles give these instructions for moral living and all, it's not just to set rules for the church, like do this or don't do that, because we don't live by the law. They're teaching us what the renewed image of Christ in us is like. It's to give us like a pulse check, like, is this me? Is this who I am in Christ? And if our lives don't match up these descriptions, like loving one another, be filled with humility, be patient, be kind, all that type of stuff we read in our Colossians reading, if that's not you, are you really in the faith? And so the charge would then be, repent. Live in light of what you know is going to happen. Because if you know that the day of reckoning could be today, or tomorrow, or in a thousand years, or whatever, like, we know it's coming, are you living in light of that it is coming? And so when we get these moral commandments, it's not just to say do this or don't do that. It's to make you aware of what's inside of here. You're either, either filled with the Spirit of God that loves the Lord, aches to love and obey Him, and aches to love and serve your neighbor in sacrificial loving ways, or you just don't care. And maybe, you, maybe that's you. Maybe you just like being around churchy stuff. Maybe you like coming to church because you like fellowship. Maybe you like coming to church just because you like the singing. That's the wrong answer. The right answer is, the Lord Jesus gave his life so I could have true life in me. And I will call upon him, and he will save me, and my life will be transformed. That's the basic Christian premise. He calls us to life, and you either have life flowing out of you, and you see that continual change in your life from glory to glory to glory. 
where you ache in your heart when you sin against God, when you ache in your heart when you fail your neighbor, or you live like you just don't care because the universe will tick on as always. Which one are you? That's the challenge for today. Do you ache for righteousness? Because remember the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. It's a promise from Christ. You know the day is coming. Do you believe it? And if you do, are you preparing your heart for that day, seeking repentance and God to heal your soul, to make you the man or woman in Christ that you're supposed to be, or you just don't care? There's not any other options here. Which camp do you want to be in? And I say this to you as I would say to anybody else because I don't want you or me or anybody else to be deceived on that day. Because Jesus warns us. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, you know, I loved you. I served you. I did all this stuff. And Jesus says, on that day, I will look them in the eye and say, I never knew you. Be gone from me, you, you wicked person. You hated me. You hated my kingdom. You hated my cross. There will be no deception. So let's take the warning seriously. Do you love the Lord Jesus? Do you ache for his coming? Do you believe that he's coming? And are you ordering your life around his word and his commandments? Do you love him? Do you love your neighbor? And for those of you who do not, and you in good conscience can say today, I like the idea of God, I like churchy stuff, but I really want to live my life, the warning is for you. Repent while it's called today. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ today. Be baptized in his name today. Cling to the gospel promises today because you are not promised tomorrow. You are not. And that day, whether it's your actual death or the day when Jesus blows the trumpet and whatever that end looks like, it will not end well for you. But the love of Jesus is for you. His love for you is so strong that on the cross, he took your sins on himself to free you. And in his resurrection, he promises that all who call upon him will be saved, forgiven, and actually have a genuine relationship with their creator. Because your creator loves you the most and he made you special for himself. He does desire for you is not destruction, but life. Will you cling to the promise of life that's offered you and the cross of Jesus? the place where sin is destroyed and life destroys the grave. During the altar time, pray. What areas of your life need repentance? Where do you need healing in your heart for the sins that still hold you? And if you have not trusted in Jesus and you wanna pray with somebody, we'll be up here. Don't be embarrassed. Jesus loves you and he's calling you to his kingdom. Don't not respond to Jesus. He is God, and he made you, and he loves you. Cliff Fisher, would you pray for me?